So this is the first Sunday of the month of December, which means it would be the time to uh, contemplate together the teaching verse on our uh, calendar page for this month, which at this time I could I could see what Ajahn Chah was saying down to just a few words, which in essence says moral restraint leads to happiness and freedom from remorse. Mm. Moral restraint leads to happiness and freedom from remorse. Mm. Now on first reading of that, you can go, oh yeah, I heard that before, you know, that's obviously that's pretty, yeah, that's okay, yeah, yeah. nothing necessarily terribly deep or profound. Yeah. But do we do it? Mm. Are we able to realize the kind of happiness that Ajahn Chah realized, that the Buddha and the great disciples realized? Do we know that happiness? Do we live with the uh, privileged state of mind that is free from remorse, free from all remorse? And what difference would it make if that was our experience? And... What difference would it make to the world if people were exercising moral restraint and living with happiness, contentment, freedom from remorse? But when we start to think about it, it would make a huge difference. Make a huge difference to us personally and would make a huge difference to the world. So this is characteristic of the Buddha's teaching. He wasn't pontificating. This is not a dogma that Ajahn Chah was handing out and expecting us to believe in. Rather, in keeping with all of his teaching, all true Buddhist teaching, all true spiritual teaching, it's a pointing to what works. So what the Buddha was interested in is what works. You're probably all familiar with that incident recorded in the scriptures in the time of the Buddha where he was with his monks in the forest and he gathered up a handful of leaves from the floor of the forest and asked the monks and said, what is greater, the, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest or the leaves in my hand? And, and the monks uh, uh, accurately observed and commented that that the leaves on the trees and the forest are much greater than the leaves in your hand. And the Buddha said, so are all the truths of existence much greater than what I've taught. But what I've taught is what works. And so the Buddha was acutely aware that there's all sorts of aspects of reality, uh, all sorts of spiritual teachings that could be followed, could be attached to, could be believed in, but they're not productive. They don't work. They don't bring real benefit. So what the Buddha and the great teachers taught and gave us is what brings 
real benefit is how you end up bringing real benefit and actually work. So, so this, this uh, short teaching, although it is the sort of thing that we've all heard before, it's, uh, it's on the calendar page there because it's really worth thinking about, really worth contemplating. How do I apply this? And what would it be like to live completely free from remorse? And, well, and what does it mean? What's the implication? Well, it means this moral restraint. Restraint. What is that? What is the characteristic of that? This morning, um, as uh, we do uh, generally on Sundays, uh, we, when the community, the monastic community, when we finish having our breakfast together, uh, one of the monks reads from the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah as a way of honouring our debt to our teacher and also as a way of reminding us um, what's at the core of what we're doing here. And this morning, the, uh, the reading was was uh, about Ajahn Chah uh, describing how our practice is really a way of studying nature. This is, he was pointing out what the Buddha wanted us to do was to study nature and to come to understand nature. Yeah. Not to fight nature, not to try and conquer nature, but to understand nature so that we can accord with nature. When we don't understand nature, the nature of the world around us and our own physical and spiritual nature, when we don't understand nature, then we can end up making an enemy out of nature. We can end up being unnecessarily afraid of nature. We can end up not according with nature. And then if our in relationship with nature is not one that's harmoniously according with nature, then we can throw things out of balance inwardly and outwardly and of course, we're all aware that there's plenty of evidence of that. So the Dhamma is an investigation, a study of nature, coming to understand nature so that we can accord with nature. And this, of course, accords with the, the Buddha's own teaching, where in his very first discourse, the very first teaching that the Buddha gave, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, where he talked about his realization of the true nature of things, the true nature of consciousness, and specifically the true nature of suffering. And that how in his life he had followed conditioned reactions to life. First, he had spent 29 years indulging in having a good time. Spent 29 years indulging in pleasure, trying to get as much pleasure as he could, and then he got exhausted and tired of it. And once he came across the raw reality of life, that no matter how much pleasure you indulge in you have, eventually you're going to grow old and, and get sick and die. So isn't there anything else? And so embracing the religious conventions of the time, he reacted to the other extreme of indulging in pain, self-mortification, starving himself and denying himself exposure to stimulus and developing intensely, ultimately refined states of consciousness so he could withdraw from the world and it didn't work. So indulging in pleasure didn't work for the Buddha, 
indulging in pain or denying pleasure didn't work for the Buddha. And then he said, from investigating the reality of the pursuit of pleasure by investigating the nature of desire, he arrived at the right understanding that freedom from all suffering and that he called the middle way. So this investigation of nature is the primary characteristic of the Buddha's teaching and it's not, as I said, it's not a dogma that we're expected to believe in but it's the teachings are an inspiration to encourage us to inquire for ourselves, to find out for ourselves. And so with this teaching that Ajahn Chah gave, that moral restraint leads to happiness and freedom from remorse. Uh, well, when we stop and investigate what is restraint, instead of just following our habitual reactions to pursue the, um, as much pleasure as we can or to deny pleasure... Uh, the Buddha's realization was the word he used was these are these are devoid of benefit. The word that he used was you know, blindly pursuing the impulse to seek pleasure is devoid of benefit. Blindly pursuing uh, the avoidance of pleasure or the indulgence of pain is devoid of benefit. But what does re- bring real benefit is the interest in this, and interest in the nature, the nature of desire. Yeah. What, is, what is desire actually? What is frustration actually when we don't get what we want? Yeah. What does frustration feel like? Well, if we don't have restraint, if we don't have what the Buddha called Sangwara Indriya, the Pali word, is it restraining the heart energy from going out following, following through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, through the six senses, this exuberance of the heart, the untamed exuberance, this expression of what he used, the untamed exuberance. If we don't investigate this, we don't come to know this, we don't come to witness this for ourselves, then we don't realise the benefit for ourselves. Hence all the encouragement that the Buddha and the great teachers gave us for restraint. This is not talking about... Moralizing, uh, when we when we use the word restraint, it can very easily take the mind towards mm. controlling or repression or fear, and uh, that's absolutely not what's being talked about. Restraint is that capacity to inhibit our compulsiveness. Uh, like, dogs generally don't have this. You put some food down in front of a dog, if another dog comes to take the food, it'll attack him. Yeah. It doesn't realise that by biting that dog you'll get into a fight. It just it gets angry and so it'll have a fight. Yeah. Animals don't have the capacity that human beings have to reflect on our untamed exuberance. Hmm this passionate relationship to reality. Somebody offends us and the passions flare up and you offend me, so I'm going to have a go at you. At least I'm going to hurt you with speech or maybe hurt you physically. 
That's the untamed exuberance. Now, to say that that's unskillful is not... That's not moralizing. That's restraining. Restraining the untamed impulse is simply intelligent. It's wise. It's skillful. When we do that, then we can investigate the impulse. Well, do I really have to follow that? You, know, you read something on the news and wild indignation flares up. How could they be so ridiculous? Ooh, you want to throw something at the television or at your computer screen? And you're, well, it's not very wise or skillful or productive. It doesn't exactly help the world. It's an untamed, exuberant reaction. So to get interested in this, to investigate this, it takes restraint. So that's the function of restraint. That's why restraint, Sangwara India, leads to happiness and freedom from remorse. It's like a spiritual muscle. And if we don't tame it, then we don't have that ability. It's like, you know, like the inability to stop eating marzipan. I love marzipan and Christmas is coming up. And... Now, but if I eat it, it's not good. It's not good for me. Anything more than a little teaspoon of marzipan is not good for me. Well, of course, there are much worse tests that we have to face. You know, like, for instance, Angus was saying a minute ago, the madness of the world that we live in, the regrettable sadness that, that is all around us. A lot of it comes down to the inability to restrain this wild nature that we have. There's nothing wrong with the wild nature. Wild nature can be beautiful. You know, walking in nature, going to see you know, powerful waterfalls and then walking through wild nature, it, it can be beautiful. Yeah. But if that's all you've got, you know, if you haven't got dry clothes to put on afterwards and a nice, secure, warm house to go back to afterwards and, and good medical care when it's needed, then wild nature is not so beautiful after all. You know, wild nature can be beautiful, but when it's untamed, as the reading we had this morning where Ajahn Chah was touring, when it's untamed, you know, that's not enough. Anybody who's a gardener would know about what they call bindweed. I discovered it in the garden down at Kusala House and I didn't know what it was. It's a, it's a form of convolvulus that it strangles the other plants. All those beautiful ferns and hebes and other nice plants that we've cultivated down there run the risk of being strangled because of this bindweed. You know, bindweed, if its exuberant nature is left to its own means, could destroy that which is beautiful there. Mm. Or in New Zealand... There's a, uh, a clematis, well, actually so similar with convolvulus. When it's on its own, it's very beautiful. It's got a very beautiful flower. It's uh, gorgeous to look at. It's just that it destroys other things. Well, there's, uh, there's clematis in New Zealand, which is, is called old man's beard, which is very beautiful to look at, but it destroys. It can even pull down huge, great big trees in the forest. It's something that the uh, invading people from Europe brought along with them, and uh, New Zealand nature doesn't know how to deal with it. Untamed exuberance can be, can appear beautiful, but it can also destroy us. It can destroy that which is beautiful. 
So if we get this message and we apply it to our own condition, the wild, untamed nature that we experience within our hearts, we don't judge it as being wrong, but we take responsibility for it. We find how to rightly, rightly train, rightly direct, rightly tame this energy so that it becomes truly suitable and conduces with the liberation that the Buddha realized. Well, at the foundation of the base, as you would all know, the base of this training is trust. It's not listening to dogmas that have been handed out by spiritual authorities, but it's listening to these teachings and trusting in them, meeting them with a trusting disposition. Trust, faith or confidence is a, it's an orientation of our being. Blind belief is something that goes on in the head and it can lead to a lot of energy. You can blindly believe in fixed positions and get very energetic. You can be very energized by clinging to a belief system and be impressive because of it, but it might throw you well out of balance and cause yourself and others great harm. Attachment to fixed positions almost, is almost guaranteed to do so. Whereas in the Buddhist path of practice, what's encouraged is a sensitive, skillful, engaging with trust or confidence or faith. And what we trust in is that, that awareness, this human awareness that we have, this awareness when it's rightly informed and when it's informed with right understanding, and this awareness itself will liberate us from suffering. That's what we trust in. And so that's what we work with. We work with trusting in bringing awareness to everyday life, not necessarily running off and doing lots of retreats and having special experiences and initiations and, and profound insights, but bringing this everyday common and garden variety awareness that we have to our daily life situations and getting interested in the reality like the reality of, as I was saying, frustration, disappointment. Trusting in this is something that we cultivate. As with restraint, as I was saying before, if we don't have that restraint, if it's on the physical, we might end up eating too much marzipan or too much chocolate or or something, not being able to restrain ourselves. Well, likewise, with the mind, we can't restrain ourselves when something... Painful occurs to us and sadness arises, understandably. Sadness is a perfectly suitable response to, to loss. But then we get caught up in the sadness. There's no composure, there's no containment. Actually, containment, I think, containment is a better word than restraint. Skillful containment, containing the heart's energy so that we're able to investigate. That containment means that the heart grows stronger, the mind gets clearer. When there's no containment, then that energy, that heart energy, goes up into the head and the stories start churning out and the next thing you know we're talking about or acting upon it because there's no containment, no composure. So this restraint or this composure hopefully leads us to a strength of heart and a strength of mind so that we're able to investigate the reality of Frustration, sadness, 
And the trust is one of the tools that we use. Trusting, trusting and awareness itself. We've all got awareness. If we're not, if we don't have this ability to trust, if we haven't cultivated trust, we can get taken over by distrust. We can get taken over by doubt. But doubt or distrust doesn't have to be the enemy of trust. When we trust in awareness, when we have a perspective and appreciation on the power of well-informed, rightly informed awareness, when we have that orientation in our spiritual life, not just seeking some goal, some special experience, or some special meeting with some special person, but just trusting in our own awareness, rightly informed, when we have that, then we can actually meet trust and distrust at the same time. Now, that maybe doesn't sound very sensible, but as an experience, it can be very powerful. On one level, we trust. We trust there is a real reality. We trust in the Dhamma. We trust in the, the teachings. On another level, at the same time, we distrust. We distrust. Maybe we distrust our ability. Other people can do it. I can't do it. This is for really spiritual people, not for some slob like me you know, with all my limitations. You know, we distrust ourselves. Or maybe we distrust the teachings. Yeah. We want to trust the teachings, but we actually distrust and We distrust the teacher. Well, if we go for refuge to awareness itself, that is open-hearted, expanded, gentle, interested awareness... Not contracted, controlling, limited awareness, but open-hearted, gentle, interested, feeling awareness. If we go for refuge to that, then we can take on trust and distrust at just the same time. And they become like a dynamo. So instead of clinging to fixed positions or to belief systems, the orientation of trust means that we can... We can access energy, our practice can deepen, our inquiry can deepen, we can embrace frustration. Frustration becomes functional rather than an indictment against us. I remember one talk Ajahn Chah gave one night, it was on the moon day and in the, the Dhamma Hall at Wapapong, a huge gathering of people there, the, all the lay people, the villagers had come for the evening Dhamma talk and all the monks were there and Ajahn Chah got up on the Dhamma seat and he started his talk by saying, he said, if you're suffering, he said, don't feel bad. He said, everybody's suffering. Said, oh, what a relief. What a great teaching. You don't have to pretend that you're happy. Rather, we can embrace the suffering, get interested in the suffering. From the perspective of trusting and awareness, awareness doesn't mind whether you're happy or unhappy. Just knowing doesn't mind what you know. So the refuge in awareness itself means that we can, we can examine, we can embrace frustration. And as I said, this trusting and distrusting become like a dynamo. They, become, they generate energy. Mm-hmm. We can embrace the difficulties of life without feeling like somehow it's an indictment against who we are. We're not failures because we don't feel sure. If we're not going to go and drop bombs on Syria, what are we going to do? Well, I'm not sure. I just know that I don't trust dropping bombs. I don't trust in killing. The fact that we're not sure is all right. 
It's okay to be unsure. We can access tremendous energy by being honest about being not sure. The sadness that I feel of the predicament of the world that we're in with so much affluence, so much education, so much information, this wonderful internet which means we can just look up anything anytime we want and get immediate gratification to all the interesting questions we have. It doesn't solve things. (laughs) It's a mess that we're living in. How sad is that? So what do we do with the sadness? Well, we could go and eat some more marzipan and forget about it. Or, if we've cultivated a trusting disposition towards awareness itself, then we're not intimidated by sadness, we're not intimidated by suffering. We don't have to be intimidated because we feel frustrated. Rather, the disposition of a disciple of the Buddha is interested in the reality of frustration. Like with the Buddha, his interest in the reality of suffering, of the limited experience that he came across when he was 29 years old, meant that his practice deepened until he resolved it, until he found the solution. And when he taught, it wasn't teaching a belief system, something to grasp, but it was trying to inspire interest. So each of us to get interested ourselves, and similarly with Ajahn Chah's teaching. What he was teaching was not so that we should follow him or believe in him or attach to his teachings, but rather do what he did that when we come across a feeling of limitation, a feeling of difficulty, feeling challenged, that's the time to expand our field of awareness, not collapse and try and control and re-establish a sense that we're in charge here, but get interested in not being in charge. Ajahn Chah's the most frequent teaching was not sure. You'd ask him a question, and he says, not sure, my nair. In fact, one stage, he, it's in one of his books, he says, any teaching from the Buddha that doesn't include the words of not sure is not the teachings of the Buddha. So our pursuit of certainty, our pursuit of security, if it's still defined by conditioned habits of clinging, then the chances are we're going to be disappointed. And conversely, if we pay attention to these teachings and go against our habits, exercise skillful restraint, gentle restraint, what happens is we build up this sangwara indriya, this faculty of containment, and then there's the increased possibility, as Ajahn Chah would say, of leading towards happiness and freedom from remorse. And the happiness and freedom from remorse, of course, are not also not the goal, but they're great supports for the pursuit of right understanding. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu Karandaranasi Sadhu